I have a basic question, and it's something you all have probably thought about before, um, but it's, it's not something that I spent a whole lot of time thinking about while I was here at the law school. I, I was focusing on constitutional law, actually, which I never ended up practicing. Life uh, takes many twists and turns, as I'm sure you'll find out and will, you know, probably have already found out. But the question I have is this. How does the world change? How does a society confront and combat and defeat an injustice? Big question. A lot of dimensions. Obviously, takes a social movement. Social movements have a lot of moving parts. There are sociocultural parts, political parts, legal parts. But there's one thing, maybe more, but there's at least one thing, one core element, one prerequisite without which any social movement can truly turn a society in a new direction. It's a pretty simple thing, but it's profound, and that's basic human empathy. It doesn't matter how powerful or politically connected or media savvy the leaders of a movement or a sort of uh, infant movement may be, if they cannot convince the ordinary human heart, ordinary people and enough of them to reach a tipping point in a society, that movement will never ultimately see the fruit that it seeks. Let me define empathy for you. This is not Webster. This is me. Empathy is the ability to see yourself or someone you care about in the face or life or experience of someone very different from you. Perhaps if I turn it in the converse, the ability to see in someone who is different from you on many different dimensions, any number of different dimensions. They could be a neighbor, but they could also be from a completely different world. The ability to see in that person a reflection of yourself, to essentially embed your own sense of identity, whether conscious or not, in the life or experience of somebody else. I'm going to make a broad sweeping statement, and I know as law students, you're always leery of these, but I think it's justified. Empathy is actually the holy grail of human relationships. Let me tell you why. Think about what society looks like without it. Without empathy, we divide. We hunker down. We build walls. Just think about the current presidential primary season and all the talk about building walls. Now, this is not a political statement. It has nothing to do with the challenges we face as a country with immigration. But without empathy, we build walls. Without empathy, a society like many countries in Europe right now are facing a refugee crisis, and what they want to do is close the border. This is what a world without empathy looks like. Our biases, our prejudices, all the things that naturally cause us to sort and segregate ourselves into cliques and groups that look a lot like us and sound a lot like the things that we sort of take for granted. This is, is the way the world naturally sorts itself. But with empathy, when we have, as human beings, the ability to see ourselves in the lives of other people, even people very different, all of those divides, all of them can be bridged. Political divides, religious divides, cultural divides, linguistic divides. I've seen this in my own life. That's why I call it the holy grail of human relationships. If I'm right about this, if I'm right that in fact empathy is this critical element in society and without which any movement to change society for the better cannot ultimately 
have the effect that its leaders want, then we have to ask a follow-up question, and that is how do we inspire empathy in human hearts? How do the leaders of any movement to change a society, whether it be to address race or to deal with modern slavery or gender-based violence, sexual assaults on college campuses, any number of different challenges overseas and here, how do we create the kind of concern in ordinary people that is necessary for our society to actually address these things, not just talk about them? It's a hard question, but actually I think there's a pretty straightforward answer, at least one straightforward answer. There are probably others that are more complicated. But what I would call the sort of most effective engine of empathy creation, at least the one that I've come across, is storytelling. There's a reason, when you all have kids, you'll understand this, there's a reason that as human beings we teach the most important lessons in society to our children through stories. There's a reason, because it gets past the, all the distractions of life and it goes straight for the jugular, it goes straight for the heart. It says something to, to an essential element of who we are. It creates essentially a mirror and a prism for the, either the listener to an oral story or the reader of a book or the viewer of a film. A story becomes a mirror in the sense that it actually shows us something of ourselves that we might not have ever seen before. It does it through the portal, the vision of someone else's tale, someone else's story. A story also becomes a prism to the extent that it takes the pure light of the world as it is and divides it up into component parts and reveals something of the world to us in a way that we might not have ever seen before. The fascinating thing, of course, there's a reason, there's another reason that story is so profound. It's all of us are living a story that matters immensely to us. The beauty of what a story not about you does is that it invests yourself, it invests you, it actually invites the listener or the reader or the viewer into the life journey of someone else. It gives you a chance to do the thing that we often hear talked about, walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. That's what a story does. It does it for my children who are learning basic things about kindness and dignity. And it does it for the most complex journeys of human beings across time. And we see it in many different forms. I certainly, I write a certain kind of story. I write fictional novels, what a friend of mine in South Africa calls faction. So it's fiction based upon fact. But there are a lot of different kinds of stories. There are films, there are documentaries, there are feature films, there are, there are nonfiction books, journalistic stories, there are photo journeys. We were just listening yesterday to uh, an oral storyteller tell the story of Thomas Jefferson on driving back from a, a family trip. It was absolutely affecting. It was completely moving, and it was designed for children. And it just reminded me once again about how extraordinarily powerful the medium of story is. It takes us for a moment, or for as long as we are engaged with it. And of course, there is, I would say, a contingent relationship between the amount of time you're invested in the story and the amount of effect that it has on you. But for however long, whether it be minutes or hours, you're given the chance to 
to see the world through somebody else's eyes. And you know what it does? It does this without any effort on our part. It even does it unconsciously. By the end, we find ourselves understanding. By the end, we find ourselves caring. We find ourselves invested in that life story. Now, it might be a true life story, it might be a fictional life story, but so long as it's based in some sense upon the real world, that, and I will call it miracle, happens. It just happens. It just happens. Now, I'm not just talking about this theoretically. I'm talking about this very personally. Because eight years ago, I was not anybody's human rights activist. I was here in Charlottesville. I was practicing law at a a family, uh, I shouldn't say family law, it was family friendly. It was a very small law firm. I was doing ordinary litigation. I was doing wills. um, And I was writing on the side, like in surprising number of lawyers. I don't know what it is about us. And and if you're an aspiring writer, I understand. Um, Nevertheless, that's what I was doing. I I was not um, paying a great deal of attention to human rights abuses around the world. I read The Economist, I read The Times, I thought I was fairly educated, and I was, you know, by the world's standards. But that wasn't the focus of my life. My focus was on building a law practice, trying to make uh, some money to whittle away at the mountain of student debt that I had coming out of this place, that I still have, um, and, and I was trying to build a family. There were a lot of things going on that were not, that had nothing whatsoever to do with the challenges of the poor, particularly in the developing world, victims of violence in various places. It just wasn't really on my radar. Did I care? I mean, in the sense, sure, if I was confronted with, with an abuse that was in front of me, in some sense, and I was at various places here and then, and then afterward in my reading, but they were pretty brief, didn't truly engage me, certainly didn't move the needle in my own heart and make me want to engage on a more profound level. It, didn't, it just wasn't there. It didn't seem kind of obvious to me. But then, in 2008, in exactly the way I just described, my wife and I happened to watch a film that we got through Netflix. It was a feature film called Trade. Kevin Klein was in it, did horribly at the box office. I'm not surprised. It was a pretty brutal film. But it described in, you know, or depicted in pretty graphic detail the reality and challenges of child sex trafficking from countries outside of the United States to the United States. It affected me in a pretty profound way, watching these kids. And we were, you know, at that point, young parents. And there's something, if, you're, if your parents will understand this, if, if not, you will soon, um, if you're blessed with kids. There's something about having kids that just kind of opens up like new tear ducts. Um, and you, I've seen, you know, an interview with Matt Damon. After he had kids, he just cries a lot. I mean, I find myself doing the same thing. Um, I don't know exactly what it is, but like, the idea of seeing kids suffer is just, you know, once you have them, is just deeply, deeply affecting, and it was. Our, our son was nine months old at the time, and we watched this film about kids much older than him and, and about girls, but nevertheless, it really affected us, and it affected my wife especially. There's something about sex trafficking that just, it gets under the skin of women, and I get it. It's just a visceral connection with the victim in a way that I don't think any guy can really quite reach. And I didn't. But I watched her. And I will never forget those days, the way she responded to that, the way that one film, and we watch films all the time, 
but the way that one film in, de- in depicting the abuse of children in a way that looked quite real made her react, made her ask questions, made me then respond to her in my distraction by saying, well, actually, I, I don't know a whole lot about this subject. Seems like I should. I'm a, I'm a lawyer from a top law school. I should know something about this. Okay, I'll ask Google. You know, so get online, type in international sex trafficking, United States, and, and what comes up is, you know, millions of hits, opens up a whole world. We start realizing, wow, you know, this is actually out there, not just in places we might have suspected like Bangkok and Mumbai, but here in the United States, and it involves not just people from out of the country, but people here in the United States from, I mean, girls and some men, some boys here in the U.S. And that, that connection then inspired uh, a, a sort of secondary question. So as soon as we realized we were generally ignorant um, and started dealing with that ignorance, because empathy had been inspired in our hearts for these victims, because suddenly we had to, we had to sort of confront the reality that the world was different from what we understood uglier than we had understood, we then had to ask the next question, which was, what are we going to do about it? That's, you know, an easy question to ask from your armchair, much harder to answer in any meaningful way, and there was no obvious answer. I mean, again, I was practicing law in a small firm, trying to whittle away at a mountain of debt, um, trying to build a practice that would ultimately justify partnership, um, you know, and deal with the, the... blessings and trials of having a young child, um, it wasn't immediately obvious what I could do at all, what, what either of us could do. I mean, we could throw a few bucks at a, an organization like the International Justice Mission, which is a group that works overseas on violence against the poor, and we did. But it w- wasn't like our couple hundred bucks would make all that much of a difference. It's something, right? But it's not nothing. But at the same time, it didn't, it didn't feel nearly adequate enough to answer the question that seemed to really just be pressing on us so we went on with life. I mean, the way that life often does, you ask these questions and answers don't immediately follow. But if you keep asking them, sometimes an answer does. And that answer came to my wife. I had been uh, moonlighting as an aspiring novelist since my first days here at UVA Law. As Mila mentioned, I had written the first words of an unpublished manuscript, uh, my first that I completed out there um, in the courtyard in my first three weeks, I think, probably the third week I was here, um, I had been writing on the side. I'd written three unpublished manuscripts. Nobody seemed to want to pay me anything for them um, or put them in print, which in a way was a grace. I'm, I'm grateful now that my, my early work was never published. Um, sometimes uh, life is kind in that way, as, as disappointing as it was at the time. But nevertheless, that's what I was, I was doing, um, and my wife had watched you know, for years as I'd beaten my head against the wall publishing, um, and she said, you know, I wonder if maybe you could change your uh, approach to writing stories. Maybe you could write a story about justice, and maybe you could write about this issue. And she was the one who gave me that, you know, and it sounds grandiose now, but it was very inspiring at the time. She said, you know, maybe you could write the modern Uncle Tom's Cabin. And so I thought, okay. You know, this is an issue that needs uh, more attention. And and in 2008 at the time, I mean, it's gotten a lot of attention since then. Not enough, but nevertheless, it's gotten a lot more than it had. And so I thought, okay, well, you know what? That's a pretty big project. Um, I've never written anything quite like that before. I don't have the foggiest idea where to begin. But I am a lawyer, and I do complex civil litigation, and I 
I have a sort of omnivorous interest in the world, and I know some people, and I don't know if they know the right people, but let me just start opening my mouth and asking, and let's see where it goes. I was willing to do that. I was willing to, to at least try, because I, I had a sense that if I didn't try, I'd regret it. It was one of those sort of what I would call axial moments in my life, where it just seemed like too good an idea to pass up, even though it, it was quite overwhelming at the time to try to imagine where to begin. But the joy was, and I've seen this now with four books, I'm actually about to put the finishing touches on my fourth uh, manuscript that will be published next year. The joy was once I started opening my mouth and asking questions, once I started talking to friends about this and spinning the vision of, of this story, people, good people, in the right places started saying, okay, I'll give you a little time on the phone. If you come to D.C., I'll meet with you. I mean, these are people high in government, in NGOs. People were like, you know what, that's an interesting idea, and that's not been done before, at least on this topic. And I think I, think I see. And I wasn't able at the time to articulate what I described to you at the beginning about story as an engine of empathy and, and empathy being essential to any kind of social movement. These are things that have come to me along the road since then. But I at least understood that I had been impacted by a story and understood that perhaps if I could do something similar, it might have an impact on somebody else. That vision was enough to get people in a lot of different places, in a lot of different places around the world, to say, okay, you know, we're not going to pay for you to come here, but if you show up in India, we'll open the doors of our office. IJM said that, you know, and so I got to go and spend three weeks with them um, listening to their stories, meeting their investigators who work with, uh, they're actually undercover just like the police, and they, they work to rescue kids from brothels in Mumbai. Um, they infiltrate trafficking networks. Um, I got to meet survivors, girls who'd been rescued, very little little girls, um, and, and learn their stories from their caretakers. Uh, I got to meet social workers, spend time understanding how it is that they wake up every morning with a sense of hope, dealing with some of the most broken human beings on the face of the earth. I mean, ch little children who've been serially raped for money, sometimes over the course of weeks, months, and years. I heard these stories, and these stories affected me, as you can imagine, sitting and, and listening, and this is, you know, again, a different form of storytelling, but the oral storytelling of sort of cultivating these stories from others and compiling them in a document that became nearly as long as the book that I would ultimately write and reading the stories in the literature and just confronting and with my own humanity as a father, as someone, you know, who aspired to have a daughter one day, and I do now. It's become very real, especially real since Kali was born. You know, looking at these stories, hearing these stories, living with them changed me. And it brought me to a place where I could come home after weeks abroad and write a fictional depiction of this abuse in such a way, and I understood as a storyteller, sort of by nature, what that would mean. I, I would need to write a story that was as real as possible even though it was fictional, that would have um, the right kind of emotional hooks, but that would also involve the mind. Because ultimately, what story does, it doesn't just bypass a lot of the sort of architecture in our, of prejudice in our minds and all of our sort of burdens of judgment, as John Rawls would say. It, you know, it goes straight to the heart, but then it actually opens up a, a kind of superhighway, if you will, of communication between our emotions and our reason. It actually involves story, good story involves the whole 
self, the whole person. And ultimately, if change happens, it, it happens in the heart, but it also affects your view of the world in, in your mind. And so I wanted to write that kind of story. And it took some time, and then it took the help of quite a few people um, to finally break through the, this, into the Citadel of Publishing, which is um, a very, very sort of walled world um, and very difficult to sort of break into. But, but once I did, with the help of people like John Grisham, who's a great guy and has become a friend, he loved the book, gave me a you know, great blurb that helped sort of take down some of the walls in publishing, to at least give me a chance to have the book read. Um, and then people, publishers, who were willing ultimately to come to me and say, look, you know, we'll publish this abroad and we'll pay you X dollars. And I was willing to say, okay, you know, this is the point Mila sort of mentioned, that the turn in my life where I went from being, you know, a full-time lawyer, paying the bills through that, to looking at a two-book deal, um, the original offer that was World English Rights. And I was, I was just like, wow, okay, um, I think this is enough to get us through a couple years and it was two books. They wanted another one. And so I was like, you know what? This is a chance. This is an opportunity for me to see if I can fly. I mean, every aspiring author dreams of being given that chance. And I am extremely grateful to be given that chance. Thankfully, um, in the process of having, having written A Walk Across the Sun, in the process, um, it was Grisham and then it was some others who, who recommended to me, you know, once I finished the first book, start writing another one. And it was just like, okay. Uh, the first one took my wife and me to the very edge. We spent every last dime we had in savings. Um, I was working here. I actually wrote A Walk Across the Sun in this room, and, and I'm forgetting the, the name of the room all the way on the far end um, beside the sort of open area back there. I, I worked uh, nights and weekends. I was here from about 7.30 p.m. until midnight, uh, four days a week, Monday through, through Thursday, I wrote from about 9 in the morning until about 4 in the afternoon on Saturdays, leaving my wife with my son at home, um, and then, you know, edited what I'd written uh, Sunday after church. I mean, it was, it was a crazy thing, and I did that for months on end to the point where my wife truly said after I finished that book, if this doesn't go anywhere, this is the last one. <laughs> she was just like, hey, I'm sorry, like, I love you, but... Um, and so, thankfully, thankfully, it did go somewhere. Um, but because I had had some people tell me, look, you know, start thinking about another book, I'd realized in the process of writing that book that, you know what, actually I'd kind of created a framework for future stories. I'd actually kind of lucked into what every author, you know, that hopes to write for a career wants, which is, you know, it's not a formula really, but a kind of shape, if you will, of a story that I know how to tell. And it's a story that needs to be invested with a couple of things. One is an issue or issues about human rights, something that will get me jazzed and you know excited and horrified at the same time. That will, you know, justify the expense and time and research and overseas travel and everything else. Um, you know, in the sense that maybe I can move the needle, maybe I could contribute in some sense to making society a little bit more open to the possibility of dealing with this injustice. And it also needed. A sort of place in the world because I write these international stories and um, and I've you know gotten the sense from my publishers that that's ultimately what they want they you know they want stories about the global world so um, we had and this is you know the beauty of storytelling we had uh, been in church one day and my my wife and I had listened to uh, some friends who were going to Zambia a place that I could not have identified on the map um, I could have said yeah it's generally in the vicinity of sub-saharan Africa but they were going to Zambia to start a nonprofit group working with kids with intellectual disabilities. 
another group that I had never spent, you know, much more than a blink thinking about. I didn't have any, any people in my family that had Down syndrome or cerebral palsy or autism. Um, and so, you know, sure, if I met a person like that, I could feel empathy for the challenges associated with that or their family members, or, you know, or their parents with the child. But I never really thought about, um, about folks with intellectual disabilities, let alone people living with them in the developing world where all the sort of architecture of healthcare and, and um, the support that exists in this country doesn't exist at all. And in fact, when we were listening to our friends tell the story of children uh, with Down syndrome, and they actually had three adopted children with Down syndrome, um, really remarkable people. They were telling the story of, of kids like this in Zambia, and they said, you know what, if you're born, if you are unfortunate enough, uh, you know, in the genetic lottery to be born with this kind of disability in Zambia, you stand up a four in five chance of dying before you reach the age of five. Yeah, I mean, that's a statistic, not a story, but it was deeply impactful. And then they, they explained why. I mean, ultimately, in a lot of places in the developing world, having a child with this disability is seen as a curse. It's actually seen as a black mark on you. And so as a result, it's not just uneducated people, it's people in general. Keep children with these, these sorts of disabilities hidden behind closed doors in their home. They often don't feed them. If they, if they live past the age of five, their neighbors might not even know they exist. And this is the lot. So our friends were going there to, to start chipping away at a mountain. And we were inspired independently and my wife and I talked afterward and both of us said with you know sort of without having to cross reference you know a story should I mean we should maybe write a story that would involve that but of course it didn't involve a narrative at that point and what I've learned about writing stories about writing novels is you have to have a narrative arc it's not enough to have something you care about an issue or even a character you have to have a narrative arc so thankfully, it was, it was another brochure. We got a brochure in the mail from IJM. They do work in Zambia, as it happens. And they've done work um, dealing with, with uh, you know, children who have been raped. Um, unfortunately, sexual assault is a pandemic in sub-Saharan Africa for a lot of reasons. Of course, it's a problem around the world. It's not just an African problem. But there are certain cultural elements that make it especially virulent in places like Zambia. And as it happened, IJM had done... Uh, had done a case, had brought a case, co-prosecuted a case with the Zambian authorities. It's kind of a weird tweak in their law, but they actually allow NGOs to help prosecute criminal cases in Zambia because the workload is too big and they don't have enough people and it's they're underfunded. So IJM had actually helped prosecute a case against the neighbor of a 13-year-old girl with Down syndrome who had raped her. And this is a very unusual case in this because they were actually able to get justice. And the brochure talked about how the challenges of that in a society in which these sorts of children are not appreciated, um, what resources do exist are given to support justice for the rich. Um, the colonial system, which was the legal system left over um, after independence, was it existed for the purpose of benefiting the haves. It benefited for the purpose, uh, or it benefited the colonials um, and their proteges. And so after the colonial house was abandoned, the elites in Zambia and every other place in Africa took over the colonial house, barred the door to everybody else. And so what you have is a justice system that is really not geared toward the poor or anyone in really in need of justice. It's geared toward protecting the people who really have enough money to protect themselves. 
So this particular case was was very unusual, but it gave me what I needed, which was a narrative frame for a story. So I thought, you know what, I can tell a story about a girl with Down syndrome who gets raped, and and I can build that into something bigger. I can actually make this more about gender-based violence around the world. I can bring in some characters from the West who were there working, uh, one of whom you know was raped on Martha's Vineyard on East Beach, Chappaquiddick, literally the opposite socioeconomic pole of the world from a slum in Lusaka, Zambia. And, and then I can weave in other things. I can weave in HIV and AIDS. I can bring in uh, issues of foreign aid, and, you know, which we as a country were wrestling with, particularly at, in 2011 after the, the 2008 crash. There were huge questions about our generosity, our programs abroad, development assistance, whether they should be cratered, they should be just shut down, whether they should be seriously retrenched. And, and yet I was looking, and the more I research I did, the more I realized that we'd actually, you know, we in this country with our generosity and Europe and any countries that participated in both PEPFAR and the Global Fund had saved an entire generation of Africans from death, from HIV and AIDS, as a result of the billions that we poured into PEPFAR. And that generation needed a voice. It was actually a story that I felt needed to be told. Um, and so I wrote The Garden of Burning Sand, and, you know, I, I was, as I did just, just like uh, with A Walk Across the Sun, I was deeply affected by the stories of the people that I met, enough so that I was able to come home and write another one, um, another story that, you know, I've seen as it's been released and read around the world. Um, you know, it's really been a privilege to see readers have the exact kind of response that I always hoped to evoke, that I was evoked in me by, by trade, um, you know, years ago, which is... You know, I never really thought about these people. I never really had any concern for them, not because I'm a bad person, but just because it never really crossed my radar. Life is uh, very distracted today. It's very overwhelming. Um, We can't possibly worry about the plight of every person around the world who's being abused or uh, being neglected or exploited. But through a story, we get invested in these people. And I've, I've actually had people come to me and you know, and say, how can I get involved in development? You know, young people, how can I make a career of helping people like this? That's my greatest joy as, as a novelist is actually to get those kind of responses. I mean, if, if the reviewers say, hey, this is a great book, that's really nice. But when I get somebody whose heart's been turned, somebody who's actually been inspired to care, like in a deep way, and to get involved, and that's the, the greatest joy. So somewhere along the way, um, I think it was... It was when I was researching uh, the Garden of Burning Sand, another event happened. A lot of my stories are kind of inspired, like I said, by these, these real-life events. You all may remember this. It was back in 2011, the sort of height of the Somali piracy craze, when um, there was a U.S. sailing yacht off the coast of Oman, four Americans aboard that were hijacked um, by 19 Somali pirates. The U.S. government sent all these Navy ships in, sent you know the same SEALs that rescued Captain Phillips a couple years before, um, you know, at least the same team, SEAL Team 6. They sent a, an FBI negotiator to the scene, and over the course of four days, with tons of media attention, of course the media, they weren't on the boats, but they were able to, you know, the, there was a lot of press about this when it happened because it was kind of like, you know, this is Captain Phillips times four um, with a ton more pirates than were there before, and, uh, and so, you know, and yet the Navy had sent this overwhelming response. Um, and it kind of seemed like, at least the way the media was talking about it, that this was an inevitable rescue. I mean, eventually, 
the good guys are going to figure out a way to convince these pirates to let these Americans go. Four days later, all the Americans are dead, shot by three of the pirates when the Navy moved one of its ships closer to the sailboat. There the story ended. A tragedy, inexplicable. The media had really no way of explaining it. They tried. There wasn't much, uh, much information out there. Nobody had seen it other than the, the Navy, and they were not really talking um, in the way that the government tends to shut up when things go south. Um, and, and that was really the end of it. And my literary agent, after that story, more or less, just died a quick death. Um, my literary agent said, you know, Corbin, it's really interesting, these lawless spaces in the world, this vast swath of the Arabian Sea that's literally, you know, barely patrolled. And, and not just that, but then, of course, the Horn of Africa, which has been besieged by a civil war um, and had, you know, millions of refugees flowing out of Somalia, and he said, you know, you might actually write a story about that. And I remember thinking at the time, gosh, you know, the piracy event, that sounds like a really cool story, but Somalia? I mean, really? Like, if I had picked, I mean, truly, looked at the map of the world, that probably would have been the last place on earth that I ever would have imagined writing a story about. Why? Because my view of that part of the world had been informed by... Battle of Mogadishu and our rangers dragged through the streets by a Somali mob and Black Hawk Down, the movie, um, and, you know, the refugee crisis and, uh, you know, the number of, of famines that had created terrible pictures of babies with distended bellies and the piracy craze. And it just seemed like this completely lost, hopeless place in the world. So why would I tell a story about that, especially given the fact that Americans writ large don't really care about Somalia. Well, it was interesting because I wrestled with that because I have to write stories that ultimately publishers want to publish and people want to read. So, you know, the Americans in crisis story is something that I could imagine people reading about. I could not imagine virtually anyone coming to the story outside of Africa and caring at all about Somali characters. But that was a challenge for me. It actually presented me the greatest challenge that I've had as a novelist. How do I create characters who are criminals and who are Somalis for an American-slash-Western audience that by the end of the book you actually care about? It kind of felt like jumping through some very difficult hoops. Um, but I love challenges. And so I thought, okay, if I'm going to write this book, it's not going to be about piracy. That's a core arc. I can write a story around that. Okay, that's the narrative that can drive it forward. But this has got to be about the soul of Somalia. This has got to be about the people of Somalia, not just pirates, but kids, boys, girls, families. It's got to be about husbands and wives torn apart. It's got to be about whole people groups, clans that have been decimated by this war. It's got to be about war itself. What does war do to the soul of a country? What does war do to individual people? And how does war then spill over into the rest of the world and affect all of us, even if we never thought about that place? We're seeing this very same thing happening with Syria right now. It's actually almost deja vu on a much larger scale. So, 
I dived in and started reading about Somalia, and I got to tell you, there was a moment, there were two moments that I'll recount for you, where my heart turned. The first was uh, I was reading uh, this amazing report, heartbreaking report by Human Rights Watch, about kids that had been stolen by al-Shabaab and other radical Islamist groups out of their schoolyards, walking home from school, walking to the store. They'd been kidnapped. If they were boys, they were forced to fight in the war. Some of them, obviously not the ones that Human Rights Watch was interviewing, but some of them had been used as suicide bombers. The girls had been forced to support the war effort or into marriage with the commanders, often at very young ages. And these kids are the ones who had escaped and gotten to Kenya, to Dadaab, the refugee camp that I ultimately went to, which is just a few miles from the, from the Somali border. And these kids told Human Rights Watch their stories, and they were absolutely hair-raising and affecting on a, on a level that just stopped me in my tracks. Like, I actually was sitting in my office on Water Street just crying because I felt it. Like, suddenly it mattered. These kids were not just anybody's kids. Somehow, in some weird way, they were my kids. And I cared. And I wanted to write a story that would matter. And then, as my research progressed, and I, I do it just like building a case, I do a ton of reading, and then I do interviews, and then I travel and go overseas. That's what took me ultimately to the Navy ships in the Arabian Sea with the help of a lot of people that did, did some amazing research for that. But there was, there was a point also in my office where I read this book called Keeping Hope Alive by a, a woman named Dr. Hawa Abdi, who was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2012. She... Uh, was called by Glamour Magazine, um, who gave her an award in 2010, uh, one part Mother Teresa, another part Rambo. Probably the pithiest description of a person that I've ever run across. I met her daughter. Um, I'll get to that. But after, uh, after I read that book, um, the story that she told, it, it just wove itself into my heart. She, had, uh, she was a successful physician uh, in Somalia from one of the um, sort of top clans, if you will, um, like a caste, if you will, in India. Um, she had been successful. She had built a hospital on her family's land outside of Mogadishu. Um, her kids were educated. She had family members in Nairobi, in the diaspora. Um, and, and then the war happened, and Siad Bari, the, the dictator, fled in 1991, and the world, literally their world, started falling apart, and people started fleeing Mogadishu in droves as the warlords took over, and the clans started killing each other. And, and Dr. Howe was left with a fundamental question. Are we going to flee like so many others in our social set, or are we going to stick around and help? And she decided to stay. And over the course of 20 years, it's now been 24 years, she and her daughters have run this refugee camp on their own land with occasional help from the outside world, often with no help at all, sheltering over now 100,000 internally displaced people, dealing with uh, radicals. They even, at one point, uh, Hezbollah Islam, in I think it was 2010, um, in one of the various sort of uprisings within Mogadishu, had actually taken her camp over at gunpoint and said, you know, you're a woman, you shouldn't be running this. And this is the Rambo part of her, you know, in terror. She stood up to them and said, I'm helping my people. What good are you doing? Now, this is the sort of fascinating beauty of Somalia. She was able 
after they released her, she was able, through her clan connections, to convince these, these crazy guys to release her and release her camp and go away. She was able to convince them to issue her a written apology. Can you imagine that? Now that is a woman, after reading that book, I thought, I want to meet this woman. This woman is a hero, and I had never heard of her. And I bet most Americans have never heard of her, or her story, or the story of her people. And so I, I called my literary agent up, and I said, Dan, if you can get me another deal. And by this point, I was like, you know, this is my livelihood, so you've got to get me another deal. I'm not going to just go over there on spec. You can get me another deal. I will find a way to go to Somalia despite the risk. I want to meet this woman. And with the help, a couple of years later, I think it was about a year and a half later, with the help of a journalist who I met and uh, some embassy contacts, um, I was able to go to, to Mogadishu and go with the help of the African Union military, which has been battling al-Shabaab over there for years. They gave me um, an armed convoy just for me to take me to Hau Abdi's village. And I was able to walk you know, through the refugee camp with Dr. Decca, Dr. Howe's daughter, one of the only visitors they'd had from the West in, in years, with the proviso that I could only stay there 45 minutes because as soon as my white face was seen, someone, an al-Shabaab contact, would inform them, and I would have that long before they would come for me. So it was, it was definitely a, um, a hair-raising thing. I had to wear bulletproof you know, body armor and all that stuff, which was very weird. Um, but nevertheless, it was completely worth it because, again, here it was, a real person, a real story that I could weave in some way into my story. And that book, that's the one that comes out, you know, in October. Um, so my own experience, I mean, I have lived what I was talking about before, about the power of story to completely affect and change the way that you see the world. Um, I don't have a lot more time here. There, you know, one of the things I wanted to discuss, and maybe I'll go over very briefly, is the way this has actually worked out in social movements. The, the one movement that I know the most about is the, the movement for abolition, um, both in uh, the 1780s in, in Britain as well as in the 1850s um, you know, here in the United States. And this is, a, I think, a fabulous example of the power of story. In 1780 in, in Britain, the slave trade was actually the backbone of the, of the British economy. I mean, it was, it was literally the most lucrative trade um, in Pax Britannia, and, and as a result of that, it was politically protected um, by Parliament. It was also, in a, in a critical sort of uh, profound way, it was morally unquestioned. It was actually protected by this whole sort of superstructure of a political, religi religious, and philosophical thought about the nature of man. I mean, it was this whole anthropological argument uh, in favor of slavery that, that ordinary people um, you know, allowed it to exist, and not only allowed it to exist, never questioned it, never, never considered the possibility that enslaving an African was, was even wrong, let alone that it should be abolished. I mean, you can think something is wrong and still sort of, eh, well, I'll let it go because I don't know what to do about it. But when you think it's okay, imagine a society. I mean, how do you get a society from that place to abolishing, to you're writing a law to abolish something that was so lucrative. Into that world stepped William Wilberforce, this parliamentarian with connections, and, and he knew something. He knew something about that society. He realized that in order to win that battle, in order to get to the point where Parliament would introduce a law and then pass it to abolish the slave trade, which was his original 
goal, his original objective. He knew that he would have to convince ordinary Britons to care. It wasn't enough that he, you know, that he could rail against it in Parliament. He had to convince ordinary hearts to feel empathy for people that were considered at that point less than human. That is a great challenge. And yet, the way he solved that challenge, the way he met it, was to tell stories. Stories of the Middle Passage that nobody had ever heard before. Stories of people being packed on top of one another in the, sla- in, in, in the hulls of slave ships and being cast over the side to, for insurance money. Stories of people defecating on one another and people dying and, and then, you know, in the midst of this and then being thrown over the side. These are stories people had never heard before. True stories. And then he was able, with the help of friends, to leverage what media existed at the time. There was no film. Novels really weren't a big thing at the time. Publishing was mostly pamphlets and, you know, uh, and also newspapers that got sort of not, not a terribly wide readership. But he used those, those media to tell those stories. And he also created, it was, it was a fascinating picture I once saw of a, uh, a pin that the abolitionists wore in that, in, in that period, the sort of late 18th century in Britain, that said, is not this man, it was a picture of, a, of an African slave, is not this man my brother? That question goes to the very heart of my definition of empathy. And it was the very thing that won over in the end after years and years of telling these stories that won over a society to passing a law to abolish something that was making them so much money. It was really in the interest of every British per- person to preserve. So the very same thing happened in, in, uh, in the U.S., though it was you know, some years later, obviously. Um, into you know the mix of the Missouri Compromise in 1850 and all of the the sort of fulmination about slavery and what to do about the West and the future of um, uh, you know the western part of the country came a little woman from the north who published a novel called Uncle Tom's Cabin and if we can believe and I'm not sure if it's true it's an apocryphal story who knows but if we can believe the story it actually was the book that inspired Abe Lincoln to say to Harriet Beecher Stowe, so you're the little lady who started this great war. That book sold more copies of any book than the Bible that year in 1852, 300,000 copies at a time when nothing existed like, you know, the Random House's printing presses. It was an absolute sensation. It galvanized a people both to uh, stand against slavery and to try to defend it. It brought to a head something that probably, I'm not sure if it would have been brought to the head in the same way. It definitely had a seismic impact. This is the power of story. So I don't know, I mean, you know, being law students, I would imagine that a lot of you came to law school with the hope to impact your world in some meaningful way. I don't know what issues jazz you up, you know, what gets you fired up, what, what you sort of, what part of society you hope to change, but I can tell you this much. If you want to change the world, Story is your best friend. Find a way to use it. It doesn't matter how you use it, but find a way to use it. Thank you. Yeah, you can leave. It's 10 till. Actually, that's exactly when I had to wrap up. Awesome. Um, or if you have questions, I'd be happy to answer them. I'll, I'll start with Yeah. Very powerful insight, uh, and there was actually this 
psychological research that suggests it has this phenomenon of psychic numbing. Right? Mm. We can read in a newspaper that 400,000 people died and it will, bar- it will barely register with yeah. one story can, right? And if exactly. you think about the, uh, the Syrian refugee crisis, there was this one picture of this That's little right. boy on the shores that actually really changed the, 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 the dynamic and the, story, the stories that were being told in Europe and even moved things forward much more than just caring about the numbers. Uh, so I think I think that's true. But then the, the interesting que- or the important question, I'm sure you don't have an. I, I, I yeah. don't know if you have an answer to it. I guess I don't. <laughs> I'll try. Uh, but it's like, so so many stories remain still untold. Yes. Right. And and stories also sometimes go away. So I, I think if I think about the Darfur, for example, that's right. And it was a, um, this period when people were talking about saving the Darfur, and, and it was a story that was being told that was being registered, and then at some point. Other events happened, and it, it didn't stick. Right. So I guess again, an impossible question: of How do you get more stories? How do you get them to stick? Yeah, you know, it's see that goes into the other parts of you know how a movement ultimately takes shape. I mean, I think every movement is galvanized by by stories. I mean, if you think about the civil rights movement, I mean. Um, people in the north, you know, uh, white folks who had lived like my parents, you know, in places in the Midwest where they never confronted the reality of the oppression of African Americans, um, suddenly seeing pictures in the newspaper of, you know, Emmett Till and um, Sel- the Selma riot is sort of, you know, the brutality around Selma and various other things that did galvanize um, some attention. But of course, at the end of the day, a society actually has to take action, and that action usually takes the form in some way of, of legal change. Um, and and that's we've seen this with virtually every movement. I mean, laws change in some way in order to protect, either to prevent the violence that's being that's being perpetrated, or to protect the victims or both. And I, if you use Darfur, that's actually a great example. I mean, that was one of those situations where there was a lot of attention. I mean, celebrity attention, George Clooney. I mean, lots of lots of folks. Um, but the challenge was putting you know any meaningful action on the ground in order to. Uh, create sort of uh, a more peaceful Sudan. And the reality right now is that, you know, what, what we had, of course, there was this sort of South Sudanese secession and the creation of a new state, but there's still a tremendous amount of violence there. Um, and, and a lot of that's a tribal thing. A lot of that's a cultural thing that really can't be addressed just straightforwardly in law. That, that really actually has to be kind of a transformation that happens within the society. So what I would say, you know, in, in Africa is, is a kind of a unique place in the sense that it's, um, having written about it, you know, I've gotten it from the horse's mouth. I mean, from people in Zambia who told me when I asked them, you know, where are the books that have been written about your stories? They just said, none of them have been written. They're all oral. This is an oral culture. Very few Zambians write books about Zambia. You know, and I thought, okay, well, maybe that's something I can contribute as a Westerner. It's going to be hard. I need to get it right. Um, so the Zambians look at me and, and don't think that I hijacked their culture, you know, that I misconstrued it. But I think that's one of the things that, that actually the stories have to reach the society in which the abuse is happening and has to transform that society. So, you know, to the extent that at Darfur we can get jazzed in the West about it, we have to find solutions that work in Sudan for the Sudanese people, and that's always the challenge. I mean, anybody in development will tell you exactly that. It's we can change some laws, but we ultimately have to affect the people who are perpetrating the violence and their neighbors. And that's true for, say, child sexual assault in Lusaka, which is what I wrote about in my second book. It's, you know, it's obviously a big problem. It's got, you know, a lot more that needs to be done. 
Anybody else? Yeah. Oh gosh, that's a great question. <laughs> my my daughter is five. My my son is eight. Um, they know that I write books for a living. Um, they they love the covers. My son, you know, now can read well enough that he actually picked up my first book about child sex trafficking and started reading it. And you know, but he's not old enough to really appreciate it. So he read one page and then put it down. Didn't really know what was going on. Um, it's got to be age appropriate. And frankly, my kids aren't ready to deal with this. But I have talked to a lot of folks. I mean, I think one of the challenges with that particular issue is the average age of entry into forced prostitution is 13 to 15. So you're talking about very young girls that need to be educated about this, not just in India, but here in the U.S. And so, you know, as my daughter ages, you know, and when, when it gets to a place where we, we hope to introduce our kids and raise them in a world without, you know, visors on, without, you know, colored lenses, we want them to see the world as it is. Um, and introduce them to the challenges of poverty and injustice. So when, when the time comes, you know, I may not, yeah, give them my books exactly, but we'll get to it. It's a good question, though. Anyone else? No? Yeah? Um, how do you reconcile as a writer trying to speak about these stories that are really important to you but not having, like, a personal connection to them where you feel like it's kind of not your place necessarily? Yeah. No, it's, it's a good question. I mean, um, there is a kind of uh, sort of natural gap between, you know, telling a fictional story or even telling a factual story about someone else that you've not experienced. And that's something that every journalist wrestles with. Um, you know, I kind of see myself as doing in fiction what you say Nick Kristoff does, you know, the New York Times in journalism. Um, you know, so there's always that gap. And, and it it has to be handled tenderly with a great deal of empathy and respect, you know, and ultimately my hope is to tell stories that people walk away from and say, you know, he treated this gently and carefully, um, you know, with immense respect for his subjects. You know, is he a victim of, of this crime? Can he ever really understand? Of course not. Um, but at the same time, you know, I can, I think as human beings, empathy goes a long way and, and that's something that I've learned. It's an art, it really is. And, um, and as a storyteller, I actually get to kind of step into other people's lives and live them. Um, but because, you know, and this is sort of the essence of what empathy does in our hearts, it creates the sense and, and the recognition that ultimately even, you know, underneath all the things that divide us and all the things that make us different, we're actually fundamentally the same. So that allows me, I think, to go there because we really are, as human beings, all essentially the same. We're all ultimately looking for the, the basic things that we're all looking for, whether it be love or belonging or meaning in life, um, peace, safety, protection from violence. I mean, all these things are common. So, yeah, it, it takes a bit of a, a leap, um, but it's something that, you know, I actually kind of feel privileged to be able to take with people. Anybody? You were talking about how you kind of came to that crossroads, you know, when you watched that video yeah. and thought, like, okay, what can I do? I mean, obviously not all of us are, are going to be talented and all of us. I mean, I think that's a sure. talent that, that only a few set of people have. Right. I mean, what are some other things that cross through your mind on sure. how you could contribute while still, you know, having the obligations of a family and, and obviously supporting your family and things like that? Are there any other... You know, oh, yeah. No, there are, and, and um, it's a great question. It's something I was actually just having a conversation with um, the young guys, I think 32, not a lawyer, um, but he and his wife, and 
came across stories of, I think it was uh, Thailand and Cambodia, sex trafficking over there, and, and they started a, um, an NGO in Richmond, uh, you know, that has connections overseas. And um, obviously that's a pretty significant step to take. Um, you know, not everybody can live on a, a nonprofit salary. Not everybody has the freedom to do that. Um, but I've seen people do that. I've seen young people, um, whether they be law students or students in, in college, think through, you know, how um, choices they make about the, uh, the direction their career takes and the directions their life, their life takes um, could, you know, in some meaningful way sort of connect with uh, resolving issues of injustice around the world, combating it in some way. Um, you know, whether, you know, lawyers kind of have this obvious thing. I mean, I've, I've met immigration lawyers who deal here in the U.S. who deal with, uh, deal with human rights abuses through immigration law. Um, I've met, you know, lawyers who do internships abroad with groups like IJM, and then they come back and they get involved in other ways while they pursue a nor- sort of a traditional legal career. Um, you know, there's, there's room for social work and people in education. I mean, one of the big things I've been sort of, if you can call it, preaching, you know, over the course of the last few years um, has been the need to educate, you know, young people in this country about the dangers of, say, of human trafficking, especially young women, um, because it's happening, and it's not just happening to poor kids, you know, from unfortunate family situations. Those may be the typical victims, but it's actually happening to lots of people across socioeconomic and racial boundaries. Um, and so, you know, there, you know, I try to get teachers involved and, and administri- uh, administrators involved. Um, you know, and then, gosh, I've had people come to me and say, you know, I, I like making handbags, you know, so I have this online business and I'm going to donate 10% of my, you know, profits or whatever to an organization and put that up on my website. It always, you know, makes it, it's like, you know, you're investing in something more than just buying another thing for yourself as a customer. Um, so actually corporate generosity is a huge thing and something that I, I always try to push, you know, particularly to groups that, you know, are connected to foundations. I mean, there is, you know, one of the things I realized in, in studying development is that for every dollar government gives, there's actually more. I don't, I don't know the exact number, but, but the private sector gives more. Um, and as a result of that, you know, they, foundations and large net worth individuals, people like Buffett and Gates, um, are investing in various things. They, they usually will pick an issue or a few issues and really invest in them, like Gates really invests in public health, you know, and that's been his big push, and he's done a lot to, to, to sort of move the needle. People, you know, in uh, sort of every foundation is looking for a masthead issue, and I'm actually going up to, to New Canaan, Connecticut, to speak to a fairly new foundation with connections to sort of the hedge fund world up there um, in November. They've just created a justice wing to uh, advance the needle on human trafficking in, in the United States, which is an issue that foundations have generally overlooked. So there are a lot of different things you can do. I mean, really, um, you know, my niche is kind of unusual, um, but I did come to it, you know, and I thank my wife for that. It was her idea originally. Um, but again, I, I think the sky's the limit. There really are a lot of different ways you can get involved. Well, thank you very awesome. Much. Thanks so much for coming. I really appreciate it.